Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Let's Unpack That, your weekly podcast where this politically engaged queer millennial unpacks world events through the lens of anxiety, depression, and everything in between. Um, today, we are unpacking adverse childhood experiences, a form of trauma. Um, and today, my guest, I'm very excited to have her on her 30th birthday, um, is Emily. So um, Emily is brand new, and for the first time in a long time, we actually have someone who has studied the field that we're unpacking. So uh, definitely a unique take for us here in the Let's Unpack That recording studio that is my guest bedroom. Um, but Emily, so happy to have you on the podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Paul. I'm very happy to be here. It's It's been a long uh, time coming. And I say that because um, we recorded a three-hour episode <laughs> a week ago. Last week. And it was totally unusable because the audio quality was horrible. So um, thank you all. My audio was great, by the way. True. Emily's was great, but mine sounded like the Dane Cook skit when he has someone ordering at Burger King and she asks for a Whopper. Um, I basically screamed into the microphone for three hours while I drank a couple drinks and uh, sweated about my own childhood trauma. Um, and then we realized we actually couldn't use any of the footage. So Emily, I'm so grateful that you came back, especially on your birthday. Happy to be here, Paul. We've been talking about this for a long time, so... We just had to make it happen. Yeah, I think we did. Um, so why don't we just get a quick introduction to you? So um, where do you live? I live in Philadelphia. I am a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I attended the University of Scranton where I got my bachelor's in psychology. I also stayed at the University of Scranton to get my master's of science in clinical mental health counseling. I am originally from the Philadelphia area. So after grad school, I moved back and started working in various community mental health settings across the Philadelphia area. Uh, currently where I work, um, I oversee all the clinicians that we have at our agency. So uh, what I'm involved in doing is uh, overseeing all of our clinical supervisions, providing training, kind of doing quality assurance uh, issues. So weighing in on any major uh, problematic cases like kind of across the city, just to kind of provide some clinical insights and ways that we can work best with our, with our clients across the city. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. Um, huge shout out to Andrew Kelly, uh, guest on episode 34 uh, in, or 33, Internalized Homophobia. <laughs> Big shout out to Andrew, my cousin, um, who introduced us maybe three years ago, four It was ago. Pride 2016. Oh, yeah. So four years ago. You like how yeah. I remember. Um, okay, Emily. So obviously you have like much more job experience than I do in this, but like I would imagine you also have to have professional certifications to do what you do, right? Yes, you would hope so. Um, so for those of you who are in therapy and are interested in seeing a trauma therapist, make sure that your person is trauma certified um, or has uh, always, I always advocate for people to question their therapist credentials um, the same way that you would with your doctor's credentials or any other um, helping profession in your life. Um, that's my little tip for the day, I guess you could say. Um, but so I am certified in prolonged exposure therapy, which is one of the leading treatments for PTSD. It is actually the leading treatment for PTSD for uh, the Veterans Administration. I'm also uh, trained in TFCBT, which is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the lead treatment for children, adolescents, um, and their parents and caregivers uh, in recovering from trauma. So I was going to say, so um, talking about that, one of the interesting 
things that I found in our conversations before this are around like the many definitions of trauma. Um, and, you know, when we first recorded this episode, we talked about multiple levels of trauma. And I think realizing that the, the audio issues that we had actually helped us really pare back um, the agenda for today. So, um, you know, we're going to talk about trauma. We're going to talk about ACEs. We're going to talk about where that came from in the research. Um, and then we're going to talk about how this applies to some of the things that we've been hearing about um, in the news, online, and what people have been talking about, especially I think as it relates to um, systemic racism, defunding the police, um, different struggles that I think particularly minorities go through um, as it relates to trauma. Um, but also I, I think one of the things that Emily has said that's so interesting is that all of us experience trauma and trauma has many different levels. So um, this podcast could easily become part of a series and we definitely want to hear you uh, talk about this and ask us questions about this and give us feedback on this because I think that because what I've learned from Emily is that all of us do experience trauma, there's going to be other people out there who are listening to this who maybe say, hey, could you talk about this specific topic? So always know that you can get in touch with me at It's Paul Warren on Instagram um, and just let me know that you would like to do another episode because this thing is basically made through listener feedback. So um, if that's good with you, Emily, I would love to jump right in and talk about trauma. Sure. So before getting to... Um talking about trauma, it's important for us to define what is trauma. So I'm looking at the SAMHSA definition, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So according to SAMHSA, trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or threatening, and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. It's important to note that trauma can affect people of every race, ethnicity, age, sexual orientation, gender, psychosocial background, and geographic region. A traumatic experience can be a single event, it can be a series of events, and or what we call a chronic condition. Traumas can affect individuals, families, groups, communities, specific cultures, and generations. It generally overwhelms an individual's or community's resources to cope and it often ignites what we call the fight, flight, or freeze response at the time of these events or even uh, after these events occur. It frequently produces a sense of fear, vulnerability, helplessness, and hopelessness. Yeah. So one of the things that you said that resonated about it affecting everybody, um, and I think what ties most to this episode, is it can affect children. Um pretty significantly. And I would imagine you work with many child patients, right? Yeah. So I've worked with, um, I've worked specifically with children and adolescents uh, prior to my current job where I, my entire job was being a trauma therapist. So uh, I was working from as young as five up until um, 21 was the oldest client that I was seeing at the time. And they have, um, one of the things that I always loved working about working with adolescents and children is that your brain is fully developed by the time you're 25. So for me, I always looked at it as a way of, okay, you experience this adverse event in your life or a series of events, and I'm here to kind of provide um, you with tools and resources and ways that you can heal from your trauma so that it doesn't essentially mess you up for the rest of your life. 
and have lasting impacts on your biochemical makeup, um, on the way that your brain processes and inputs information. So that was one of the, um, and that was, that would be a big motivator for a lot of the teenagers who would kind of like be really into the whole like science side of it is that we would talk about like, what are ways that you can, you can't change what happened to you, but you can change how you react to what happened to you. Yeah. Um, That's like, I don't know. It's inspiring. I'm sure it's really hard work and it's really draining, but it is really inspiring to think like a, a bunch of young people were like, we can still beat this. Like we still have time. Yeah. And I think like, you know, one of the, just to throw like some statistics out there, um, you know, I think about like school shootings just because that is um, when we think about young kids and we think about um, things that are publicized, especially prior to the pandemic, we think about the Sandy Hook shooting and we think about the Parkland shooting and just other various shootings across um, in schools. Um, And one of the things that's really important to be mindful of is that you can, everyone pretty much has trauma reactions after a traumatic experience occurs. Um, But when it comes to developing acute stress response or which develops into PTSD, those numbers typically you look about 10%. So an entire school can experience a traumatic event, but six months after or even a year after that event, it's generally only about 10% of those students or those adults or or any traumatic experience where um, those people are meeting criteria for PTSD or acute stress disorder. So I say that because it's important to be mindful that like recovery is possible and that trauma Im- trauma affects everyone, but it does not greatly impact everyone because we have this natural recovery that our bodies kind of arm us for. Obviously, people who do not have that natural recovery or have experienced a um, multitude of traumas before they experience maybe this larger trauma are more vulnerable to not being able to naturally recover, or maybe they don't have the resources or um, the supports to be able to achieve that natural recovery. And therefore, they, um, you know, meet criteria for acute stress disorder, which could develop into a variety of other things, uh, PTSD, and a whole, um, whole bunch of other things and things that we'll talk about as it relates to um, how it could impact them later in adulthood. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And we, when we come back, we're going to start talking about ACEs, the research, um, and probably get into a little bit of the real world application for those of us who maybe aren't um, actively recovering from traumatic events. So uh, stay with us. All right, everyone, welcome back. Today, we are unpacking adverse childhood experiences. So, um, Emily, can you give us a definition? So what is an adverse childhood experience or what we're calling in short form today, an ACE? So the ACEs study is a study that got a lot of traction in the field of psychology, especially when it comes to trauma. So Kaiser Permanente and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention did a study out of California between 1995 and 1997, where 17,000 participants were recruited to 
answer a series of questions as it relates to their health outcomes. This was the largest study that was ever done. So again, thinking about 17,000 individuals that were asked about experiences that they had while they were children as it relates to their home environment, and then if they experienced abuse or neglect, and then also looking at how did that directly impact their um, health outcomes as it relates to them as adults. Yeah. So let's talk about that research again a little bit. So like, what were some of the primary questions that these researchers asked? So there was a series of 10 questions that related to the following adverse childhood experiences. So it was yes or no to these following questions. Did you experience physical, emotional, or sexual abuse? Did you experience neglect or abandonment? Did your parents get divorced or separated while you were growing up? Did there... Was there someone in your family who was addicted to drugs or alcohol while you were growing up? Did you experience family violence? You know, um, actually how it's worded, it's really interesting to read the, the former study because how it's written is like, was your mother beaten by your father? And you're just thinking about like, the, you know, obviously like that is not how everyone grows up, uh, especially mm-hmm. um, it's not the ideal nuclear family that we, that we are, that we were told when we were growing up. Right. Um, yeah. Did you experience poverty, poverty, homelessness, a lack of food and basic needs? Did you have a family member incarcerated while you were growing up? Or did you live with a family member who experienced mental illness while you were growing up? And it asked for these questions from birth until age 18. That's like, because, you know, when I think about that in my own privileged up, upbringing, I can probably answer no to nine of the 10 questions, you know, like as you're saying them. Um, but you've you've obviously worked with a lot of young people, as you were saying. So just, you know, do a lot of people that you work with because they have experienced trauma and maybe have lasting effects, have they also experienced ACEs growing up? The field of psychology is pretty new. Uh, And what I mean by that is this research was collected 25 years ago and it still impacts how we look at things today. One of the things, I don't know if many people know this, is that, you know, we're gonna be collecting research and information as, for example, how we're all impacted by COVID. It's not, we're not really going to have all that data until about 10 years from now, um, unless we're kind of re- improving how we're reporting on, a, on that, which we'll probably get into a little bit later. Um, yeah. But one of the things that it's important to be mindful of is that, again, these are just 10 questions as it relates to what we're, what has been coined the ACEs study. What we know about trauma more so now is that it's much more pervasive than out than, than just these 10 questions. Mm-hmm. It's also asking about, um, cause it's asking about your family dynamic and people can experience trauma or have traumatic experiences that are totally unrelated to their family dynamic, um, that could impact them at, as a child or throughout the rest of their life. That's interesting. So I guess, what were some of the findings of the study? So people are are asking these 10 questions and people are saying, yes, I would imagine they made some like conclusions like as they were analyzing the results. They definitely did. So of the 17,000 participants, one in four were exposed to two categories of ACEs, meaning that they answered yes to two of the 10 questions. So 25% of the 17,000 people that is wow. correct. Yeah. Wow. Sorry. Just doing math. <laughs> Congrats. One in 16 were exposed to four categories of ACEs, meaning that they answered yes to four questions. 22% were 
sexually abused as children. 66% of women experienced abuse, violence, or family issues in childhood. Women were 50% more likely than men to have experienced five or more ACEs. Wow. Yeah. And those so are just like, like some quick findings. Yeah. And it's like so funny because when you and I bullshit on Instagram about like people of privilege and like minority groups that face certain things, you know, like this is some of what we're talking about, you know, like when we talk about groups being like perpetually disadvantaged because they face a lot of these experiences. And that's not necessarily like what the ACE study is saying. It's just more of like my common knowledge, like being sort of verified in some way about uh, some of the findings of that study. But when it comes to reporting, you have to also be mindful of how this information was collected. So when you're doing a trauma screener at an agency or when you see your therapist, it either is going to be them asking you the questions or you're going to be doing a self-report. And most often than not, the majority of the clients that I've worked with, they're not endorsing trauma or they're going to minimize their reporting the first time that they're meeting with someone because you don't have that trust. You don't have that bond with the person. So the, I'm just always like overly cautious about re- with numbers because, and what I mean by that is that I know everything is just underreported. We know the statistics about sexual assault are underreported. We know about um, the rates of suicide are underreported. I'm sure that coronavirus is underreported. That's a whole other yeah. episode. Um, yeah. But not according to a lot of people that I talk to online. God, or a lot of people that slide into my DMs, I guess I should say. Yeah. Right. But you were talking about underreporting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's important when we get research based off of certain categories, these categories have been endorsed by these, by these, by the people that are uh, participating. And so I'm always curious to know if it's self-report measures or if it was based off of like forms that they um, filled out whether they were present with their therapist or their therapist did. For example, in our agency, it's required pretty much in any um, program that accepts medical assistance for you to collect data. So we're required to always do a trauma screener whenever we admit someone to our agency. But most often than not, um, they're underreporting. Actually, our trauma screener at our agency is actually based off of the ACEs study, just because it only has 10 questions, whereas more advanced trauma screeners now have about 20 to 25. And again, the first time you're meeting to some meeting someone, you just want to get like a little bit of their history if they're not open to kind of disclosing that the first time that you meet with them. But right. um, furthermore, in our follow-up assessments, I always have a more advanced screener that I encourage all of our therapists to use so that they're kind of building a bridge a little bit. Um, and it's much more updated uh, to include things like community violence, um, terrorism. Um, you know, we have, if someone has been a refugee, you know, we have more people who um, have immigrated to this country or have experienced persecution. Um, we talk about the more advanced trauma screeners are assessing various different types of trauma that I think in 1995 and 1997, we were just curious to know how these experiences or ACEs that people have early in early childhood, how do they impact your, like the trajectory of your life um, as it relates to physical health outcomes. So what, like, what are some of the most common ACEs or just what are the most, what what are some of the most like common trauma experiences that you've seen either in your previous role or this role when you're working especially with with young children you know or or you know what are some of those those common aces that you see 
So in my previous role, a lot of the clients that we were working with were in foster care or were in kinship care, meaning that they were in the care of someone else in their family. Um, so whether that be a grandparent or a aunt or uncle, because their parents were not able to care for them. And generally that was because of their serious mental illness or um, substance use related concerns, which left them to relinquish their rights or um, to no longer have um, the rights to their children. So a lot of the work that I did with kids was just related to either being in foster care and just the ups and downs that come with that and being able to adjust to that or the loss of your parent, um, whether that be actually like parents who have passed away or not being able to see your parent anymore because they are struggling with drugs or alcohol. Um, I worked with a lot of kids who experienced community violence. So they were in neighborhoods that were, um, particularly like I would imagine police heavy, but also crime heavy. Yeah. Police heavy or crime heavy. I mean, in Philadelphia, like the rates of homicides are really high. We have a lot of gun violence, um, domestic violence situations where children were either removed from the home because they witnessed domestic violence or they were currently experiencing domestic violence. Um, there were a lot of people that were referred to us just because they experienced sexual abuse. So they were referred um, from after if a report was made and they were fo followed up with special victims unit, they made a, they might have been referred to our agency because um, of the trauma services that we were providing. So supporting someone through testifying in court, having to face their abuser, um, and just being able to heal from that while going through a court experience. It's This is not a visual podcast, but I, I keep continuously nodding and shaking my head depending on what you're saying, because I, I, I feel I'm learning just so much. Uh, it, it, there's, it's so, I don't know, it's just, it's so like, in depth, like what you have to do in those conversations that you need to have. And like, we could fully unpack your resiliency to all of this stuff as a person in another episode. But how do, how do some of the young clients that you work with, like, perceive what has happened to them? And I don't mean, like, do they feel sad? Or do they feel happy about like, or do they recognize it? But one of the most fascinating things I think that you mentioned on our previous recording, was that like, you ask certain types of questions to to talk to them, to elicit information from them. It's not just that straightforward, right? Like, so how do, how do they sort of perceive like what happened to them? Like when they talk about how they can beat it or when they talk about what happened to them? I mean, I think it's important to, I guess I have a bunch of different thoughts and I don't know if I'm answering your question mm -hmm. the way that you have intended, but I never look at therapy as a power differential. Um, I think it's important, you know, I'm sitting across from you and I am here to help you, but we're going to hear, we're here to work together on how that is going to look like. And, you know, if you don't have the partnership and agreement from your client and or their parent, depending on how involved the parent is in your, the treatment, then you're not going to get anywhere. Um, and so I could have all of these um, letters after my name and all of this special training, and it's going to mean nothing if I can't really connect on a basic human level with my client. Um, so I think that 
for the first thing that came to my mind when you asked, like, what do your clients think? A lot of times they think it's, they don't understand that it's not normal. Um, so, you know, and, and that could be for a variety of different reasons. They could be because of inner, excuse me, intergenerational trauma where their parents' parents also experienced traumatic experiences or also experienced sexual abuse or also experienced domestic violence or a whole, um, or substance use or a variety of different issues. So it could be, it's, it's normal to them. Um, but I think that it's important to, that's why like psychoeducation is really great. And you use kids that are so used to being in school and that are so interested in learning about things that you kind of present information about like, Hmm, like, have you ever experienced anything like this? And if so, like, how did that make you feel? Um, how did that make you think? How did that, how did you react in your body? How did you, um, you know, do you get really scared when you hear a loud noise or just, just various things like that? Like, um, or do you no longer want to engage with family members because you're afraid they're going to hurt you or just a variety of different things? I don't know if I'm like kind of going down a rabbit hole or if I'm like answering questions, but. No, I, th I think you're answering it because that's sort of my thought is that it's very, from what we hear, common, that common knowledge, again, like my, my sort of uneducated knowledge about this stuff is that like, it's hard for people to say, yes, this happened to me. And I know that this is, is wrong or yes, this happened to me. And I recognize that this probably plays a larger role in how I develop as a human being. Cause like, those are, those are things that children are not necessarily going to make the connection about, right? Like they're not necessarily, um, they're things that, like you said, you need to work with them on. Like, even when I'm talking to my therapist, like I say, I have an issue. And then he digs in with me, like, well, let's like, you don't just like have this issue. You can't just come to this conclusion that you have have anxiety. Let's talk about the feelings you have. Let's talk about the reactions that you have to certain situations that have presented themselves in your life. So it sounds like you're sort of asking questions that like help them sort of walk through some of their experiences a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, most definitely. I think about like, I'm reminded of a lot of the teenagers that I would see who their parents would say, you need to go to therapy. And in Pennsylvania, you have, you can either meaning you are considered the, an adult when it comes to your rights of consenting to treatment at the age of 14. So once you turn 14 and mom and dad say, or, you know, your guardian says that you don't have to go anymore, then a lot of them are like, I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times I think about the teenagers that I would work with and they would have a lot of, you know, maybe like behavioral slash mood concerns. You know, they weren't really getting along with people or they weren't really, they were having some problems. Maybe they were having some academic difficulties. Maybe they were having some issues kind of connecting with other people. So most often than not, people do not seek, of the clients that I have worked with, um, they are coming because they're experiencing some type of behavioral or emotional concern. And for me, who has a background in trauma, I'm always mindful of keeping that Rather than saying, like, what's wrong with you, really looking at it, you know, what happened to you. So their parent or or whomever may be coming in and saying, they're doing this, they're doing that. This It's always important for me to think about, okay, what happened to them so that they would want to react in this type of way? So I take all that information in in terms of, like, what the chief complaints are. And I talk to the client and I say, like, you know, what do you think is really going on? What do you think is really the issue? 
to really get their buy-in so that it's not just like, you know, my mom and dad or my grandmother or my, you know, parent or guardian is telling me that I have to come and talk to you for an hour and like rolls their eyes and I tell them to put their phone away and then they get even more and more, more annoyed. Um, but I think it's important to, again, um, helps. And if I'm going to be sitting across from someone also asking like, quote, what's wrong with you? I'm not going to get a mutual respect and understanding from that client as well. So I always just say, you know, Hey, like what's going on, what's going on for you? Like, are there parts throughout the day or are there issues that you're experiencing when it comes to your schoolwork or connecting with your friends or with your relationships or trusting family members or going to family members house or sleeping? Do you have any, any issues? And so I think it's important, like the way that you ask the questions that you do um, if someone answers yes to any of those things, then I ask, I probe a little bit more and say, hmm, well, why is that? Or, you know, you ask someone about their sleep. Um, if you are chronically in a state of um, fight or flight or freeze where you, your brain does not rest and so you are, you know, feeling really hypervigilant all the time, which is going to have drastic impacts as it relates to your ability to concentrate, your ability to think, your ability to function in your relationships, your ability to um, develop appropriately. So being able to, I think, normalize those issues for clients is really important. You know, just saying like, you know, hey, based off of the information that you're giving me, this is what I think might be the issue. Or I'm going to ask you some questions, just wondering a little bit more about your background, if you've experienced some of these situations. And that's really where you get an understanding more so of how their thinking, feeling, and behaving could be connected to the experiences that they have experienced in their life. The same thing happens when you're talking to adults and you do a trauma screener. Um, And maybe they received treatment when they were a child. Maybe they didn't. but just being able to promote a conversation about, hey, you had these experiences in your past and they could be impacting you now. That's really what the ACEs study did in the 90s was facilitate a conversation about how things in the past, they don't stay in the past. They stay with you for the rest of your life and they have drastic impacts on your physical health. And it's really like at that point, your ability to, to deal, cope, process, think, reflect, like all of that plays into how resilient I would imagine you can be, you know, and, and, and therapy for me at least has been a good, you know, like, like, uh, not, not that I, I, I've unpacked that I'm, you know, suffering from childhood trauma, but at least from some of the more, um, challenging things I've experienced as an adult, um, you know, to have my therapist sort of just sort of help me build like resiliency. So I just, I don't know. I, I, I think it's like very commendable work, like what you do. And I'm curious, like, as you were talking, one question that popped into my mind, like, you know, you, you probably have conversations that last like, uh, uh, like, or, or, or conversations that maybe it takes like three sessions to really start get going. But for, for other clients, does it, can it take like a long time for them to share? Is it, is it individual to the person? Oh, absolutely. I think it really depends. I also think it's important to understand like someone's history, like if they had previous therapists before, um, and if that was motivated by them wanting to be in therapy or because their parents or caregivers wanted them to be in therapy. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, I also think a therapeutic relationship is facilitated on trust. So it's important to understand like 
if they've had trusting relationships in their life before. And if not, a therapeutic relationship can be the one relationship, positive relationship in their life that really demonstrates and shows that they are a value and that how they feel is valid um, and that they can participate in a mutual um, connection that is not dependent upon anything else. Um, I think that not everyone is an open book, so they may be open with the things that they have experienced in their life right away. Um, maybe some people only share some things. I mean, I've worked with some clients like, you know, for uh, like three or four years, and it took a long time for them to open up about the things that they've experienced. I just think when you are able to honestly and openly talk about the things that you have experienced in your life that are still affecting you, then you can get closer to yourself and the issues that you're experiencing. And therefore you can, I guess, get closer in therapy. I mean, I don't really look at it as I look at my, I don't look at the effectiveness of me as a therapist on how close my clients feel they are to me. It's more about how authentic can they live their life And if they feel like they can live their life authentically in a way that they don't have to hide anything, whether that be for me or from other people in their life, then I feel like they're on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think um, one of the things, jumping back to that ACE study a little bit, were some of the the long-term research that came out. So somebody's identified that or somebody with the help of a therapist or, or not has identified that they've maybe experienced an, an ACE or two or three or four, you know, as we said, women were, were five times more likely to experience certain things um, than, than men. And so like some of the conclusions or risks for later in life, like what, what are some of those that that study revealed? And again, disclosure that this has fully evolved like from then. And we're always going to be a little bit behind when it comes to research, always doing the research, but you know, it takes a while to see it. So what were some of the, I guess, conclusions or some of the long-term impacts that people realized from ACEs? So some of the findings were that people who identified or endorsed that four or more ACEs, so answered again, yes, to four or more of those questions, they were 14 times more likely to attempt suicide four and a half times more likely to develop depression, two and a half times more likely to experience liver disease, four times as four times more likely to begin intercourse by the age of 15, 11 times more likely to become an intravenous drug user, and three times more likely to have lung disease or um, be a smoker. And, and isn't that like just <laughs> from what we've talked about uh, on Instagram in our texts and stuff like just I, I, I like when I hear this stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm so reminded about this movement to defund the police. And that's not what this podcast is about. But when you think about the movement of defund the police, it's basically saying take some of this money and put it towards community programs that help people do better in life. And that is like such a simplified way of talking about this movement. But like some of the programs that have been recommended, some of the things that have came out of that ACE study are things that, you know, 
like would actively or could actively be funded and could actively reduce trauma in people and thus reduce risk for all of the things that you just talked about. So what were some of the 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 programs that that the ACE study recommended to um, different community leaders, to different people to say like, hey, or governments even to say, hey, what should we do or what can we do? for the youth that are experiencing this type of trauma. I know that there were some about, right, like the the economy and some about, you know, like, 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 it was like strong start for children. Is that what some of them were? So the program that I think you're thinking of is Head Start, which is a early intervention program for children um, that is either subsidized based off of their parents' income, or it is free. So, um, what we would like to think about that is maybe like universal pre-K and childcare. That's OMG, kind of like Joe moving, Biden. moving in that direction. Um, <laughs> so there's a variety of other uh, strategies that can be put into place to kind of prevent ACEs. And what those programs would really look like are, you know, what programs that can be put in place to strengthening um, fa- financial security within households. So like universal, universal income for everyone, not just because like, Trump says that we should get $1,200 once. Thanks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> family-friendly work policies. So like, well, whether that be like flexible work hours or um, employers that have daycare on site, various things like that. Um, public education campaigns. So looking at you, Betsy DeVos, pretty much anything but what you're doing. Yeah. Middle finger to that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, providing training as it relates to bystander intervention. So generally those programs are provided in schools. Bystander intervention as it relates to like community violence, sexual assault, a variety of other things that um, can be prevented by other people being able to intervene. So can, can we talk about the politics of this? Like, is that okay for us to go there? Sure. Because if we had, if we had government funding for programs like this about economic support, Social norms, strong starts, helping people with skills, connecting with caring adults, intervention. Like if we had all of these things, like don't we think we would be a society that would experience less trauma? Because I am I am jumping to like a conclusion that probably many experts have made. And I, I, I'm not saying that like, oh my gosh, like, ACEs will solve all of this, these challenges. But what I'm saying is like, when you think about who you're going to vote for in November, right? Like why not vote for someone who's going to lessen the impacts of childhood trauma, like which will then obviously lessen the risks of some of the things that you mentioned around homelessness, around disease, around preventative like measures to help protect people. Like, I don't know. I just like Joe Biden wants universal pre-K or like, or pre-K. Joe Biden wants universal pre-K. Like Joe Biden wants like a version of universal health care or closer to universal health care um, than uh, Donald Trump. Like we want higher pay for teachers. Like all, all of us want prevention and intervention. All of us want social justice programs or like at least not all of us, I guess, if all of us did, but uh, we'd be in a very different political position than we are now. But it's just like, I, I, I just, and it's not to put you on the spot to talk about politics, but like sometimes we do that on this podcast, but like, why not try to implement social programs that reduce the risk of trauma in our children? 
Like, yeah, and I think like a plug here too is that obviously we are talking about the presidential election and obviously that does drive federal funding, but it's also important to look at your state and local government as well because that really impacts a variety of other programs that are available uh, within your communities. Um, I, I remember- think that's a point. Yeah. yeah. I think that like, um, I, I think that I'm sure, you know, a little bit more of the statistics, but like, you know, there are more people who are going to vote in a presidential election than they are to vote in their state and local elections, or just, you know, they're just when it comes to things like school board or, you know, I guess things that are not necessarily, um, I feel like there's like elections that I think about in my like, you know, days of being a voter, I guess you could say that I would like drive by and I would you know, shamefully not realize that there was an election happening. You're like, oh, what? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or like, you know, I would, you know, vote for people based off of like things that I heard rather than doing research. And so I think it's important, you know, I obviously, you know, we do have those people who vote based off of like one ticket issues. And, you know, I always find it really funny how people always talk about like, we need to invest in our children's future. But then they like vote for people who are going to defund programs or provide um, necessary resources for people. Yes, they're going to take away necessary resources to them. It's crazy. And I think, you know, it's always a good check, like whenever somebody reminds me about state and local, because my hatred of Donald Trump is like very evident on all of my social media channels and and throughout this (laughs) podcast. And like, you know, basically what, what I do a lot of times is like when I'm sitting in the car before I go in to vote, I do a quick scan of the different candidates, both Republican and Democrat, because you never know exactly, especially in an area that's more of a swing state like Pennsylvania, I never really know where even the Republicans might fall sometimes. So like, especially in your state, your local, your school, your county elections, like all of these things, like just do a quick scan of what some of these people stand for. Mm-hmm. Like, because like you said, your programs, like the one that you're in programs like the the one that my friend Sierra supports are are tied to government funding, both state, local, and federal. Like my friend Sierra works and um, it's funded as part of the the overall food stamps program. Okay. So uh, SNAP, I believe, is the official language yep. for that. Um, and and yours too. Like a lot of the resources that you receive, right, are through government funding. Yeah, right? we get um through medical assistance, so Medicaid, Medicare, or county funding. So if yeah. those things are going to be cut which is always so interesting when they talk about, I just always find it very interesting when people, even if like people who are in my office, which this is a whole nother episode about like, if you're counseling someone whose beliefs are clearly not, they think that they're one thing, but they're clearly another thing. Um, And what I mean by that is talking about how like, if you want to be very pro-Trump and I am sitting here being like, we are in a Medicaid and Medicare funded facility and he does not believe Medicaid and Medicare should be a thing. And therefore, you would not have access to the mental health care that you have for free. So, so yeah. Like, and it's so, I just, it's fascinating because I think about the same things. Like friends who work at hospitals, friends who, you know, like treat a lot of Medicare and Medicare patients. Like during a coronavirus, this man is trying to like cut health insurance for millions of Americans. Well, and, and I like, think about, yeah, absolutely. And also like, I mean, obviously like I look at mental health specifically and I think globally conversations about mental health and the impact that being quarantined or experiencing multiple deaths or just not being able to go to school or not being able to connect with your coworkers or not being able to see your family or a lot of like 
losses, whether that be physical losses or losses of, of things that we are used to in life, that has obviously led to a decline in people's mental health. And so I think that this is really, it was actually really funny. I was watching the news the other day and there was a commercial for, I believe it was Donald Trump. And then right afterwards, there was a NAMI, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness, was like talking about, you know, if you need resources, if you need supports, like, please visit your local chapter of NAMI, which used to be in the office that I uh, used to work in. So I know exactly where it is. And um, but I find it really interesting that, you know, major companies are talking about taking care of yourself and, you know, commercials are talking about, you know, this is really tough for all of us. And. I just find it so interesting because I have been like on the mental health as a major issue and we all need to be talking about it for as long as like, I feel like I've been alive. Um, definitely as long as I've been a professional about how um, there needs to be funding and there needs to be resources and things need to be available for people, um, especially vulnerable populations such as veterans, people who um, I'm just thinking of veterans just because um the statistics that we know about veterans, you know, one veteran dies by suicide every 11 minutes. And that is like, again, it's, it just seems to me that when we talk about cutting some of these programs, we're talking about cutting support for people. And when you think back to that statistic, you said earlier, if a hundred percent of us experience a traumatic event, 10% of us are going to have right long-term adverse reactions to it and may need therapy to, like be supported by it. Well, a hundred percent of us have been impacted by coronavirus, and you know mm-hmm. some of us are going out to bars and uh, acting like fools at restaurants and spitting in people's faces uh, for fun. I guess now um, because we all just gave up on social distancing. Um, so, like when we think about that, that a hundred percent of us have been affected by this thing, ten percent of us are going to experience, you know, long-term negative effects. Well. of 300 million people is a lot of people in the Mm -hmm. United States. And so for us to not have access to programs like yours, you know, for whatever reason, like after this is over, because we can't fucking afford a ton of shit anymore because we've fucked the economy like three ways from Sunday and pulled a dildo out of our mouth because we shoved it so far up our ass. I am just like so completely irritated by this stuff like thinking that we're just leaving a group of people to be up on their own you know like all of us have been stuck at home like all of us have been social distancing we haven't had the hugs the kisses the love that we've needed people who like found dating really important haven't been able to have that romantic connection in a long time you know people have lost their jobs and now can't financially support themselves or their family members the the trauma of what we're going through right now is massive and if 10 percent or more have an adverse reaction to it and we won't know it for 10 years down the line because that's how long research takes this is fucking scary and we should be taking it more seriously absolutely yeah, you have, you're exactly right. I don't know. Like, I, 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 maybe I've just found myself like, you know, I've had more panic attacks than I've ever had in my entire life over the last four months. You know, like I've been coping via alcohol more than I have uh, in the last 
few years with some of the more quote unquote traumatic things or, or challenging things that I've been through, um, you know, just in the last four months. Um, and I'm like actively trying to be mentally resilient, but it's really hard when you don't see an end in sight and you don't feel like your government is even going to be part of the like healing process that they could potentially be part of the harming process well yeah i mean you think about it's it's very invalidating it's very invalidating to go out and i I mean i think this is why so many people are i mean i for myself i can only speak for me like a fearful of the election like you know and being incredibly hopeful always holding hope um for brighter days and brighter outcomes and things that i that i think are you know, possible, but I also think that, you know, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of unknown, there's a lot of statistics. I mean, we're, we're, you know, Biden doesn't have it in the bag. You know, it's not, it's, you know, it's going to be a fight. And I think that um, it's, it is very scary. We're also in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and we're, we're in the middle of a variety in Philadelphia, we're in the middle of a variety of other public health crises as it relates to housing, as it relates to the opioid pandemic, as it relates to just the obviously national pandemic of racism and um, black communities being targeted for you know, higher experiences of violence, especially as it relates to police brutality. And that's a lot to swallow. That's a lot to hold, a lot to kind of handle. And I think that um, we can channel it some days by spending time with our friends or talking to our therapist or having a drink. Um, I do think that it is important to really lean into advocacy, um, especially that's generally what I try to do as um, whether that be on social media or having uncomfortable conversations with family members. Um, I'm always educating people on mental health issues because um, it's something obviously I'm very passionate about. Um, so when it come when statistics come out um, as it relates to their own mental health or as it relates to um, I guess like um, my parents like my parents and family members are all baby boomers so they're kind of used for um, a lot of the research so just providing information to them so that they can be informed um, regularly educating people on millennials and how they're calling gen z millennials and they are not um okay. it's just a tangent but yeah. but anyways i just think it's important like you know um when you think about like trauma work it's all about helping someone have a voice when they feel like they were voiceless. And I think that for all of us in what we're experiencing um, as it relates to the pandemic and a variety of other issues that we could be experiencing in our lives, it's important to facilitate having people's voices be amplified. Yeah. God. And like, for those of us who are feeling any type of like edge or anxiety as, as we're listening to this, like reach out to a therapist, like do talk space, like, you know, like connect with like a licensed professional somewhere near you. Um, and, and Emily, just to, to sort of start to close us out, what are some resources that like people can, can 
look into? Do you have like a TED talk or a book that you can recommend? Are you a published author yourself? Or- <laughs> I am not a published author. So if you were interested in seeing a therapist, I would encourage you to visit Psychology Today. That's a way that you can search um, by therapists that are in your area. You can also locate the behavioral health number on the back of your insurance card, and that will get you connected with a therapist that is in your area and a variety of other um demographic information if you are requesting. Um, for example, if you want someone who is um, a, uh, has fluency in a specific language or um, has experience working with the LGBTQ community or is a person of color, um, you, there are ways that you can search on those, especially on Psychology Today um, and read kind of someone's bios. Um, I cannot emphasize enough, Instagram is not a substitute for therapy. So please seek professional help. Um, There are a lot of people in this day and age in social media that do promote and provide resources on social media. I am definitely one of those people. However, uh, social media is not a substitute for therapy. So please seek um, professional help if you feel like you need to, but also look at the suicide prevention hotline that is always available. Um, There are other various numbers that can be located. I'm sure Paul, you'll probably include some of this information in the post. Um, But I would also, um, I don't know, I'm really into Glennon Doyle's new book, Untamed. Um, It's just really awesome. Uh, Currently, uh, as it relates to mental health, I really like um, Brene Brown, who is a licensed clinical social worker, and all of her research is around shame and vulnerability. I really like her work. I think it's really easy to read and makes a lot of sense. Um, she always talks about like living a wholehearted life and something that I, again, talking about people living life um, as authentically as themselves. That's something I kind of strive to do as well. Um, I don't know. I don't normally recommend books because I think everyone's experience is unique, um, but I think it's important to um, also not WebMD your symptoms and talk to a professional. Yeah, I agree. So speaking of talking to professionals, how can everyone connect with you? Where are you at on the socials? People can connect with me on Instagram at Emily Kate says. I'm sure you'll include it in the box. I say I personally love uh, chatting and connecting with you, connecting with you on Instagram. And I like what you said about like Instagram not being a replacement for therapy. Like I don't want people to think that they could reach out to you and they're going to get free therapy sessions from you. That's not what this is. But I think just to promote like additional education and dialogue and and learn from somebody like Emily, um, who has studied this beyond you know just me and my interest in this stuff. Um, because I am somebody who, who uh, struggles, um, from, uh, uh, anxiety and depression, um, especially high functioning anxiety with, I think Emily and I have started to talk about a little bit more. Um, so I, I don't know. I highly recommend, I think the last time we recorded, you said you're more active in the stories than you are in the post. I'm definitely much more active in the stories than I am the post. So thank you for sharing that. Um, but I, um, would respond to any DMs. So yeah. Feel free to slide in. Oh, cool. Thank you, um, Emily. And thank you, everyone, for listening. 
Um, I hope that you found this episode informative. I hope that you found it engaging. Um, I certainly did. And I think, as I said, I think that this could be part of a larger series, just talking about different versions of trauma, because there's so much that Emily has shared with me that I want to be able to share with all of you. So if you like this episode, please let us know. Please comment, rate, and subscribe. That really helps us get new listeners when you start to share it with other people. Um, And if you want to connect with me at It's Paul Warren on Instagram and Emily at Emily Kate Says on Instagram. Um, And we will certainly be sharing, unpacking more uh, in the coming weeks because there's a lot to talk about um, and there's a lot that we're all going through. So thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you soon.